Holy Word to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3. Let us hear from our Lord today. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3. We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in affliction, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, Riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying, and behold, we live, as punished, and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You're not restricted by us. But you're restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children. Widen your hearts also. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as the Apostle Paul instructed the early church at Corinth, help us to widen our hearts that we might behold wonderful things from your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This morning, we turn to a passage in Paul's letter to Corinth, no doubt his fourth letter, but the second one that we have in our canon of Scripture. And we look at a text of Scripture that is personal and caring, yet sternful and stern and truthful. And a letter can be, a, a, a communication can be compassionate and convictional at the very same time. Wouldn't you agree? This is exactly that. It's compassionate and it's truthful. It's from the heart and yet it's aimed at the head. When we read in this passage, one gets the feeling that the Apostle Paul wishes he had more time with these people that he had led to Christ and seen them gospelly converted. You get the feeling he wished wishes he had a thousand lifetimes to live with these people in Corinth, really in every church where the gospel had been received eagerly. He spoke tenderly and truthfully to these believers. He spoke gospel to them for their good. He was a gentleman and a scholar. He was a lion-like lamb. And in point of fact, 
He does have a thousand lifespans and beyond to spend with the people that he shared the gospel with that received it because that's what heaven is. So he can write this way and we can think this way without a singular hint of hypocrisy because when we talk about preparing the inward heart day by day that's being renewed for heaven, even as our outward part, our body is wasting away, when we talk about this work as being something that is in, in con- consistency into eternity, we're talking about something that is true. There's no hypocrisy when we talk as if what we do right now matters for eternity, but also that we can wish we had more and more time to labor in this field to grow in Christ because we know Christ will finish the work on the day and we know that in heaven forevermore we will be in community with Christ and that is good. And so when I read this text, I think at first blush, wow, you sure have a lot of high hopes for these people that you're a missionary to and that you've left elders with and that you are writing to, and that you won't get to spend as much time with them as it sounds like you'd like to. And then it hit me, that simple fact that we can speak boldly about gospel things, ensure in certain hope that he who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it, and ensure in certain hope that we get to have this gospel community into eternity. What my hope is for you today is that you will all see your place in this ministry, that you will see your place in this ministry more fully as we seek to walk the straight and narrow relationally by engaging one another deeper and wider. So it's my hope that you'll see your place in this ministry, number one, and that's verse three, and that verses four through 10, that as you see your place in this ministry, you will seek to walk the straight and narrow more fully and that you will engage one another even more deeply and widely. And that's verses 11 through 13. So let's take it on its parts. Our very first verse is our very first point. Verse 3. This is that you would see your place in this ministry. It's a real problem in churches is we, we tend to not see the ministry as ours. It's perhaps it's, it's a gifted teacher's ministry, it's a preacher's ministry, it's a song leader's ministry, it's a missionary's ministry, it's a, it's a jovial greeter's ministry. We don't see this whole thing, this church, as something that we are a part of and that this is our ministry. It's, it's our service. But in fact, it is. It, the, the scriptures write of ministry as something that we are all to do and be and be a part of. Now, lest this point seems awfully minor, try to catch the gravity of this. We are all deaconing. The semantic range of meaning for the word that comes to us right here in this passage as servants or as ministry is the same word that when used in the context of positional titles of the New Testament is translated deacon. So when you read verse, let's say, look at chapter 6, verse 3. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our deaconing, with our ministry. 
But as deaconing, as deacons of God, we commend ourselves in every way. It's the same word. The only reason we don't use a title deacon in that context is because the context is not promoting office holder. It's promoting function. If you were to read differently in 1 Timothy 3, you would see office holder right there with the overseers or elders. You would see office holder. And so when it writes about deacons, it's clearly talking about an office in 1 Timothy 3. Here, we're talking about the function of a deacon, which is common to us all. It's common to us all. So verse 3 says, we put no obstacle in anyone's way. Obstacleless ministry, no no. Uh, in this narrow path that we're to walk to salvation, in salvation, no obstacles in anyone's way, so no fault may be found with our ministry. So faultless ministry. But understand that the leaders of a church as servants of God are models not to take your place, but to walk in lockstep with you. I see two ways that we can get this wrong. The first one is, and bless you, we're all sick right now, bless you. We had a cough in the crowd. The first way that I see this is, we can not have biblically faithful leaders, and that's a problem. And many churches are plagued, for one reason or another, with, with non-biblically faithful leaders, or maybe no leaders at all. That's a problem. The other problem that I see is we can expect that biblically faithful leaders alleviates all problems in the church and gets all the ministry done. And the simple fact of the matter is that dog won't hunt. It's not the way it's supposed to be. It's not the way this text lays it out either. What we have is a ministry together. And my prayer, in all sincerity, as much time as, as I've spent myself in the last five to ten years trying to invest in leaders and disciple leaders and love with leaders, my honest-to-goodness truth is I'd just soon not talk about elders and deacons for the next five years if I don't need to. I'd like them to blend in so much it just doesn't even matter because, frankly, it's our ministry. The only reason you talk about that, honestly, is when there's something that needs to be shored up. You, you, don't, it's, it's, you don't dwell on the trellis when there's all this vine. It's exciting to be a part of the vine. And let's work together in that field. Not to minimize, it was, it was not to minimize, because we, it was wonderful last Sunday night at our members meeting, and I'm happy to report to you last Sunday night at our members meeting, we were able to set apart eight folks for term-limited, three-year service, as deacons in certain ministry areas in the church, not as elders, different office, and that's a different teaching. I don't have time to get into it. Just simply to say this, though, praise Jesus for eight deacons that hopefully will be like the rest of us, blending into the congregation and modeling what it looks like to be faithful servants of Jesus. We have this together. Does that make sense? I don't want to labor the point. I thought about more illustrations, but you're smart people, so I'm just going to assume you got it. That's my first point. It's our ministry. We are all deacons with a little d. This is us. We are to put, verse 3, no obstacles in anyone's way. This is not just for the apostle and not just for his cadre of associates and not just for the elders and not just for the positionally titled deacons in the church. All, each of us were to not put an obstacle in anyone's way. The examples, the exemplars are to be examples, not to be in isolation in some ivory tower as holy other. And the point is that the ministry will be found faultless as we don't seek to serve ourselves, but as we seek to serve one another in Christ, and even serve those outside the congregation for Christ. Point one, it's our deaconing. Point two, as we seek to walk the straight and narrow path. 
difficult, isn't it? What was it one author called it? The road less traveled, the poet wrote, and that made all the difference. Bunyan describes the narrow path. Wide is the way that leads to destruction, the scripture says, right? It's a narrow path, isn't it? What I I think we need to contemplate in this text today is how much we need each other in walking effectively this narrow path. What I think we need to contemplate is how much we need each other in order to walk this straight and narrow path. We don't want to walk the wide path of the world. We don't want to take our cues from culture on how to walk Christianly. To walk Christianly, we take our cues from the very word of Christ, don't we? We need to. And so listen to how this reads afresh, beginning in verse well, let's just look at verse 3. It leads into it. No obstacle in anyone's way, no fault may be found, but as servants of God, commend ourselves in every way. So commending based on what? What are servants of God commending themselves by? It's character. Look at this. There's, I counted 19 nouns, and then there's, there's seven as yet, as yet comments as well. But it's, it's a whole bunch of character comments. So as we're wading through these real quick today and trying to use synonyms to understand the nouns, see it as character Listen to, to, to how it works. As servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, and they don't commend themselves because of their oratory ability or because of you know, how handsome they are or how effective they've been in getting numbers and noses. No, this is how they, this is how they, 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 they bring their, their, their resume to the Corinthians is like this. Great endurance and afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots or restlessness, labors, sleepless nights, staying awake, hunger, or, or the word there is also can be translated fasting, not eating. Verse 6, by, by purity, we see here in verse 6, we pivot into um, not just the, the suffering of the servants, but in verse 6, we pivot from the suffering into kind of the fruits of the Spirit exhibited in the servants. It kind of sounds like Galatians 5 language, verse 6. By purity, so that's purity, that's not sexual immorality. Knowledge, that's some awareness as we grow in grace and knowledge of Jesus, Peter says. So knowledge, fruit of the Spirit, patience versus rash behaviors, patient with one another. Kind, kindness, a soft touch, a pastoral touch, kindness. It may be, as, as one scholar said this week on social media, it may be, that a sheep in the church needs to take 50 steps, really, but a good shepherd just gives them one or two. Kindness. Kindness. And good shepherds are in it to win it with the sheep, by the way. Patience, kindness. The Holy Spirit. Well, the believers have the Holy Spirit. We need to be reminded of that, right? Amen? I need to be reminded of that. The Holy Spirit... Genuine love as opposed to, to not genuine love. There's some disingenuous love posing as evangelical leaders in churches, and we need to be able to spot the difference. It's part of what this book is about, I believe. Genuine love, verse 7. By truthful speech, 
Notice there's no discontinuity between truth and love. Notice that there is speech is knowable and speakable. Factually, it's not subjective, person to person and culture to culture, regardless of what the academy will try to teach you. God says that truth is knowable and communicable, and these leaders communicated true speech, and we must also, by rightly dividing the word of truth for you. And the power of God, verse 7 says, the power of God with, and then we pivot from in verse 7, from what the suffering we talked about and from the fruits of the Spirit in the servants, which all this is character-based, willingness to suffer, fruit of the Spirit coming out, having the Spirit inside of us, power of God on display through our ministry faithfully even in suffering. And it says here then, it shifts almost to a, a war mentality and understanding of the armor of God. It's, it's reminiscent of Ephesians 6, 11 through 18. When that, that passage in the letter to Ephesus talks about the armor of God. So, so think of that as I read verse, part of verse 7 onward. It says, with the weapons of righteousness, weaponry, weapons, think war but think internal war, spiritual warfare, not necessarily physically fighting. Think internal warfare. And just pause right there with weapons of righteousness. I want to say something about this. The, the curse from the Garden of Eden on our first parents through all the rest of us by birth, the, the pollution, the, the, the disorientation that we have is so common and so profound that we discredit and discount how frustrated we are with our existence trying to walk this, this narrow and straight path. We, we, don't, we don't take it deep enough to get the kind of depth of fixing that we need not just at the moment of gospel conversion, but throughout the Christian life because repentance is truly a journey of depth. We, we don't go deep enough. And I mean by that, that when we are discussing when we are to quickening in my spirit. We have this incredible tendency to get things exactly opposite of what God wants for us. Exactly opposite. And this is an example. We, we think of weaponry, if we think of it at all, as external. And what the Christian life is about is an internal war. Yes, there are external ramifications. But this is about an internal renewal that's happening inside of us. We, we, just, we get these things so opposite. We... 
We're polishing this thing. And, and, and this is to be stewarded. The body's not a throwaway. I'm not a Gnostic. I'm not into Cartesian dualism. I don't embrace the enlightenment as far as it goes in the trashing of the body. But I'm saying as Christians, we know that only Jesus can fix this thing. And he has, he has consigned us to be a part of fixing what's in there. Like that's our job. I can't keep you from outwardly wasting away. But our job is to blend in as examples to all of us that are examples of the inward part that's being renewed. And it's war. And we have weapons of war. There's spiritual weapons. This passage says, for the right hand and the left, intimating offense and defense, verse number seven. It's war. And we get it opposite. And it's not because you're so bad. It's because we're so corrupted. I'm just so bad. I'm just so, no, no, no. Your, your orientation is off. It's just off. It's off at every, every level it's off. I mean, it's so just discombobulated. You just can't trust your orientation without returning to God's word to say, what is light and what is dark? Is war out there or is it in here? How many dichotomies could I make if I were to start listing them? You can't trust your inclination in the flesh. You must return to the spirit which indwells every believer and go to spiritual words and then determine whether or not the war in this case is in here mainly or out here. And then it affects all kinds of other stuff. But if your starting point is wrong, if your starting point is wrong, your ending point will surely be wrong too. This is not wimpish stuff. We're talking about weapons. This isn't fake faux stuff. We're talking about weapons. It's war. And you will know this when you die and meet the Lord. And what Christian people get now is you get to know that now. This work in you is not fits and starts with no trajectory. It's not in and out. This work that we're doing is a work that he doesn't just finish, but he sanctions all along the way, and that is a part of who you become in eternity. In a very real way, at the same time that this is wearing out, this in here is getting shiny and younger and newer. At the same time that the effects of the fall on your flesh body, literally, is wearing out, as age is happening, as the same time as that's happening, the war that we make together for the inward part, what you only see by faith is, is getting younger and fresher and, more, and, and less and less and less marked by the fall and more and more holy. That's why... The scripture can say, don't fear the one that can throw this thing away and kill you in the fire. Fear the one that has sway not only over this, but this. You remember those gospel words? And fear him enough to repent and then know how his perfect love casts that fear out. But you'll never know it if you don't walk through fear. It's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. Unless you repent, you will. You will fall into his hands, and it will not be good for any God rejecter.
Blame him for all of eternity, but you won't spend time with him until you yield to him. He's the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. He's the first and the last. He was there and he will be there. He made us. We are but dust unless he makes us something more. Worship him. Worship him. Behold. Go live. Worship him. This text exhorts. It's war. It's war. Verse 8. Through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, as people are so disoriented, they just can't tell the difference. Christians start to, but then we, we also sometimes have little, little things that we don't understand too, but the world has, they're hopelessly lost. They just see their orientation toward things is all wrong. They don't see spiritual war. It's all about the outward. It's all about the country. We're treated as imposters, yet we're true, verse 9, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold, we live. It's an interjection, we live. Punished yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. So you see the, the, the as and the yets, there's seven of them. And you've seen the 19 nouns, and you've seen the, the, the suffering servant language, and you've seen the fruit of the Spirit that's coming from the inside to the out. And it's talking about things that are seemingly intangible, but you can sense it, like patience and kindness and journeying together in this life. Really, in the second point, this swelled out second point in this text that's the most of the verses, 4 through 11, what you see is that ministry is primarily marked not by your accomplishments in the church, but your character in the church. It was truly a Christianly statement that a man should be judged by the content of his character and not other external markers. A man should be judged by the content of his character. It is our nature when we stray in the flesh to judge people by externals accomplishments, if they fit a certain profile, if they meet a certain need. It's not how God judges people. God looks truly at the content of someone's character based on whether or not the Lord is living inside of them. God judges based on the finished work of Christ, not any work that we're able to finish. This is the work of the Lord. This passage is about character because that's exactly the currency of ministry. It's character. Oh, how I fear the North American church has lost sight of this. I remember the Puritans would say things in the, in the vein of, I hope that the, the sermon is so faithful that when the people walk out the door, they can't even remember who preached it, but the words of Christ are simmering in their internal part so much that that's what they hold on to. That's, that's the mark of a faithful sermon. It's the mark of a faithful ministry, is that when you interact with people, it's not that they remember to praise you, it's that they remember the words of Scripture as you've meted them out in conversation, and they see the good works of the Lord, and they respond to Him and know him on the day of the Lord. It's all about the gospel. 
It's not about our comfort and our profiles. It's about the gospel. Would that you would forget the preacher and remember the preaching. Would that you would forget the minister and remember the ministry. Would that you would forget the deacon and remember the deaconing. Would that you would forget the shepherd and remember the shepherding. That all would point to the good shepherd, that great overseer of your souls, Jesus Christ. To get our moorings back this morning in this sermon, this ministry is ours, number one, verse three. Ours to remove obstacles from, ours to promote unity and chastity within. It's ours. This ministry is ours, number one. Number two, as we seek to walk the straight and narrow path, it is the road less traveled. Finally, we see number three, this ministry, as we seek to walk the straight and narrow path, will be done by engaging relationally deep and wide with all the members. Deep and wide with the members. Relationally engaging deep and wide with the members. If you want to see where I get that third of three points, look at verses 11, 12, and 13 fresh. The leaders say, they make an assertion, we have spoken freely to you. Freely we have spoken. Our mouth is open to you. We've spoken freely to you. Open mouths. That's what we talk to you, Corinthians, church members. Our heart is wide open. And now in verse 13, jump to verse 13. In return is a phrase that means wages returned or earnings. What we ask of you in return, our wage from you that we would like to see, as we have opened our hearts wide to you, has spoken freely to you, saying in return, he speaks to them with, with family language. He talks about children here. He, speaks, he takes responsibility of family. And, and despite where their, their sins have them and the corrections he's had to make with them, he speaks of them as part of the family of God. He says, in return for us opening with you, we ask that you would widen your heart as well. So, so same as we have widened our hearts with you and we've, we've opened ourselves up to scrutiny by speaking words of truth, same as not, not perfectly, but same as we have sought to live a kind of character that is, is in, in lockstep with what we communicate to you about the gospel. As we've opened up to you, in return, I'm going to ask something of you, he says, would you open up to us too? As we have enlarged our heart, as we have, have, have opened up and made a, a broader passageway to our internal part, would you, would you, please, in return, would you widen your hearts also? And verse 12 is critical to understanding the problem here and the entire marrow of this text. Verse 12 is so critical. Listen to it or read it from your Bible afresh. You are not restricted by us. See, they thought they were restricted by their leaders. They felt hemmed in by their leaders. That's what they thought. Their orientation was wrong. Now, please don't misunderstand me. Sometimes we are hemmed in by our leaders. Sometimes we have defunct leaders. They say, well, how do I know? Well, you're going to need to read the Word. 
You're going to need to dig into biblical and systematic theology. You're going to need to dig deep to know the difference between those you should and shouldn't follow. I've told you many times from this pulpit, many times, one of the most important decisions you will ever make as a Christian is which elders that you will follow as they follow Christ. It's one of the most important decisions you'll ever make. You need to be equipped to make it. And in making that decision then, you then need to be willing to submit yourself to the counsel of the elders and not constantly, constantly second-guess those that seek your good and your shepherding. See, there's a problem that can break down two ways there. Number one, you just don't ever feel the urgency to decide which elders that you should trust. I mean, that's, if I moved to the other side of the country with my family, first of all, I, th- I hope I would move to a place I'd already researched and thought there was a faithful church there to go to. But secondly, if there were choices, what I really want to know is, can I trust my kids with those elders? Would those elders teach my kids the way if something happened to me? I mean, if you want to whittle it down to what it is, that's what it is. One of the most important choices you make when you move somewhere is which elders you follow, which church leaders, are they filled with integrity and character, or are they silver-tongued and glitzy and building their own profile? You, you make your choices in this, and then, then your choices make you. So the first problem is you just don't ever feel the urgency of choosing. The second problem is you don't choose wisely. You choose unwisely. But there, I guess, really and frankly, there's a third problem, and that is maybe you choose wisely, but then you restrict your heart. That, that's, that's really a hard one to get through because all the parts are there for a great marriage, but there's just this, this steeliness between. And you know what I'm talking about, Right? I mean, Jesus uses marriage to describe the church in Ephesians 5. So marriage probably can help us understand the church here pretty well. There can be what looks like two perfectly healthy people, a man and a woman in a marriage, and yet we all know and have been affected by at times the steeliness between those two people, right? I mean, from the outside looking in, they both chose wisely. He's handsome, she's pretty. They're of age. They claim to love Jesus. They get married. It's even a church wedding. The saints gather to ratify it, and nobody objects. They forever hold their peace. And then somehow, some way in there, not a willingness to suffer, I don't know, lack of character, I, I don't know, in there. Think about this passage in line of that. Somewhere in there, the, not, not enough character in one or the other, both, or, or always seeing the other one as the problem and never taking responsibility for our own growth, or not realizing that we're to lay down our very lives for this union. Somewhere along the way, there's, there's a kind of, of a rampant distrust, whether it's worthy, not worthy, or somewhere in between, and it's not earned. It's, it's just, there's this steeliness, and, and what you have is this, 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 and this, and by all outward accounts, it looks like it should work, and yet there's no depth to it. There's no intimacy to it. There's no opening of the heart. I mean, Apostle Paul is no dunce cap wearer. This guy is extremely sharp, and yet he humbles himself to make this, put the cookies on the bottom shelf for me and for you. He says, I've widened my heart with you. Would you widen your heart with me? I've made open myself to you and spoke freely. Would you make open yourself and speak freely? And there's nothing he can do for you if you won't. Nothing that any elder can do. You will, you're just stunted and stuck. If that's there, and I don't know what causes it, always. It's not the same thing always. 
Sometimes it's me, sometimes it's you. I don't know. I just know it's a reality because this text says so and because my life experience really affirms that it is. Amen? Now, how do we move forward? Well, I think verse 12 is pivotal. It, it doesn't say everything it could possibly say, but it, it says some. So let's recalibrate with verse 12 and figure out from here where we go. It says, you think you're restricted by the, the, the leaders just not, not being good enough, basically, by us. But he says, at least in that situation at Corinth, he says, actually, your orientation is wrong. You're restricted in your own affections. So please, in exchange for us being open, would you return the favor? Cast your pearls not before swine, but cast them some worthy place and be vulnerable enough to be exposed to possibly being hurt again in hopes that in that vulnerability you might actually experience the manifold blessing of God, which is what the Lord intends to reveal through his church. Possible applications to this sermon are, are just as deep and as wide as they can be. Just as deep and as wide as they can be. Um, one application to this sermon would be to, to pray about opening up with somebody in the church that's further along the path than you and sharing something you've never shared before so that you might be able to, in widening your heart, to grow. That's an application. Um, another application would be those of you that are actually finding yourselves in positional leadership, realize that you haven't arrived and you have needs to grow big time like I do. And that our ability to help other people grow will only be commensurate with how we continue to grow in gospel humility. And if at any point we become prideful, we won't be any help to anybody, let alone ourselves. This is a ministry of service that we share. And if we do it right, we get forgotten to everybody except for Jesus and a few good people that remember us in eternity. But basically, it's, it's a mission to serve. It's not a mission to sell. That's a possible application. Um, possible application is if you haven't actually decided on elders, if this is where you're going to keep coming, then covenant and membership with us so that you're actually in the war and not just on the sideline. Get engaged. Get engaged. That's a possible application. The applications could go on and on. They're as voluminous as the nouns in this passage. And so I'll close with this. I wrote this and posted it on my social media page because it goes along with this sermon today about intentionally placing trust, about opening our hearts. And just to remind us of how this applies to our thesis statement for the sermon, we as, as members have this deaconing, this ministry, and we are seeking together to walk the straight and narrow path by relating, relationally engaging the members deep and wide. And so deep and wide is the way to destruction. Straight and narrow is the path. But if deep and wide is our hearts then we're better at walking the straight and narrow path. Sometimes what we have is we have a straight and narrow heart opening, and therefore we have a, a deep and wide sin opening. Walk the straight and narrow through deep and wide hearts with other members. And if you don't have an urgency and an intentionality with that, I fear you'll flitter your life away. You'll flitter your life away in fault-having instead of faultless ministry. Finally, I'll say, like I said, I'll tell you a story. It's really a biblical theology about intentionally placed trust. Are Christians too guarded with one another? I wrote about intentionally and rewrote. Are Christians too guarded with each other? There's definitely room for shrewdness, even strategy in the Christian life, no doubt. 
Hezekiah showed the Babylonians too much, 2 Kings 20. He showed them too much treasure, and Ahab operated in an echo chamber of his own choosing, 1 Kings 22. Jesus, and there was devastating consequences, by the way. Jesus gives us the old saying, we are to be as shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves, even to be shrewd managers. I wonder if an overemphasis, though, on shrewdness and strategy might steal, might rob from simplicity and sincerity amongst fellow church members. I wonder if default mode shrewdness and closed-offness might rob open statements of truth. Of course, we have more reason to be generally open with the fellow believers than the unbelievers. As Paul's letter makes clear in 2 Corinthians 4, we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. The commendation is the character and the conscience before everybody. It's not some secret wisdom silver tongue, or shiny ability, or accomplishment. We in Western churches might seek for less strategy and more sincerity, less guardedness and more vulnerability, less false face and more transparency, less cynicism and more trust, less program and more raw truth. Perhaps open statements of the truth in faithful local churches would steer more people, would steer more open statements to one another, and over time, deepen community life and inspire people. It's risky for sure, but rewards come as deepening disciples learn to guard the gospel more than their feelings. Guardedness in the wrong venue can be counterproductive. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I've been hurt by people that I was supposed to be able to trust. And so this sermon, Lord, is for me as much as for anybody. I've been a person that's been at times more faithful and at times less. So I can't ground this sermon in my feelings or my perfections at this point. But God, I do ground this sermon in your perfections and in your call of us to, insofar as we're able, having made a shrewd decision, to be able to open our hearts wide that we might be able to cast our pearls not before swine but before shepherds. And in turn, we might better know the pearl of great price. Help us to be mature in you. We're going to need your help for that if we're going to achieve that goal of presenting one another as mature in you on the day of the Lord, like Colossians 1.28 says. So we thank you for salvation in your name, and we welcome as many refugees onto this ship of Christ as we possibly can. And we thank you in advance for giving us this gospel ministry together. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.